Before the episode begins, I'd like to tell you about the Science for Care podcast. Science for Care is an audio series produced by HealthTech for Care, an endowment fund committed to support and promote access to care for all patients. Each episode takes a concise look at some of the major advances in medicine, mRNA vaccines, antibiotics, gene therapy, the metaverse, and many more. The production is meticulous, the narration captivating, and the guests are true leaders in their respective fields. If you listen to Impulse, then you'll be for sure interested, so don't wait any longer and go listen to the first two seasons of Science for Care. Irrespective of where I am, I still have access to expert knowledge. It's really dissemination of knowledge in the world that really can really increase, uh, you know, I think people's level of healthcare. Because in the end, that's what it comes down to. It's that that's what healthcare provides. It provides generally knowledge. And, and if we put a lot of that, or at least a significant portion of that for around hypertension, which is the world's most common chronic disease, into our system around our core technology, I think that is the real transformative purpose of Actia. Welcome to Impulse, the podcast where we dive into the most exciting breakthroughs in healthcare of our time. In each episode, I sit down with some of the most brilliant minds that are using technology to rethink the way we care. Inspiring and passionate to tell you all about their innovation and how it will impact the lives of millions. My name is Matthew Chafford. I'm a biomedical engineer and medical technology enthusiast. And in this podcast, we take the pulse of this incredible field. Welcome to Impulse. Hello, Jay. Thanks for um, being with us today. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have you for this new episode of Impulse. We we had initially scheduled a recording in, in March or this year, so 2023, uh, but I had to cancel it on a short notice as I was uh, sick at the time. So I'm glad we were able to reschedule it promptly and have the recording today almost like exactly one month after. Um, so some of the listeners will know that I studied in Switzerland and that's where I'm still based. Um, and the link to what we'll talk about today is that you are the chief medical officer of a company called Actia, uh, which is based in Switzerland and which was co-founded by um, a brilliant entrepreneur and engineer named uh, Mattia Berci, who studied at the same engineering school I went to, um, namely the Swiss Federal Institute, Institute of Technology in Lausanne. So a bit of advertisement for my, my beloved and past uh, school. I'm curious to learn more about Actia and your journey with the with the company. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about cardiology, um, which we also had the opportunity to discuss in the very first episode of the series. Um, and we'll also talk about a wearable that is capable to monitor continuously and in a non-invasive way our blood pressure and how it already transforms the way we are dealing with certain cardiac conditions. Um, before we dive into these topics, would you like to present yourself? Yes, thank you very much for having me, Matthew. Um, so yes, thank you for the introduction. I, For your listeners, um, I'm a cardiologist by training and practice. I've practiced for over 10 years in the United States. That's where I'm based. I did my medical training at uh, the University of Missouri and then Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston and then Washington University in St. Louis. Then after I did these trainings at these two very large um, health you know, institutions, each one of them, the hospitals are over a thousand beds. Then I did something quite different. And I went and started my own practice from scratch in uh, Portland, Oregon, which is in the Northwest of the United States. And um, I grew a practice there from 
basically nothing, two EKG machines and one medical assistant to a very large, very busy um, multi-site cardiology practice. And I did that for seven years. And then for the last three years, I I have moved, I had an opportunity to uh, work at the Mayo Clinic. And so that's where I've been uh, practicing for the last three years. And I was the, the director of thoracic aortic aneurysm diseases and started the program there at, at one of the Mayo Clinic campuses. Um, and then about 18, almost two years ago, I started sort of looking to, to basically to do something different, to apply all the, all the skills and experience that I've had over 10 plus years of different uh, cardiology practice but in a different way, maybe to have a broader impact and and to help more people, but in a uh, different way than you know cl- straightforward clinical practice. And so I started looking, and it was a long journey of exploration. But eventually found Mattia uh, Barchi and Joseph, uh, who are the co-founders of Actia, and they were looking for a chief medical officer, a cardiologist with experience in hypertension management, which of course I had. So. It just happened to find them. I had no real connection or knowledge of them before, um, and that's how I ended up as the chief medical officer. Um, and now I've been with the company over about eighteen months. So you actually uh, looked for them, or they found you? No, they, they they were looking for a chief medical officer, and I just found them on LinkedIn. Okay, cool. <laughs> so I, yeah, I didn't know about them before necessarily, but then I started reading about it, and I, I sort of understood what they had been doing. And of course, had work, and then you know talked to them and you know had extensive conversations, and then you know one thing led to another, and I came on as the chief medical officer. Ah, cool. Before we go into the you know the let's say the technological side of um, of Actia and and the device that uh, you guys brought to the market, uh, I think it's important to understand you know what is the the need and um, you know the issue that's being addressed there. Could you could you explain us what's the yeah what's the purpose and what's the need? Yes, yeah, so for sure. So you know, as a cardiologist, I in you know practice over ten years, and then I would see people generally after they've had or when they were having some event. They were having a heart attack. They needed some surgery. They needed this procedure. They you know had heart failure. They something happened, and that's why they generally that's why generally people come to see me. It's after the fact. It's reacting to some disease that now ex- that now exists in that person, and the precursor almost always they would ask me personally, said, "Doctor, why did this happen? Why did I have this event? Why did I need this surgery?" And the answer almost always for cardiology, which is the most common cause, you know, cardiovascular disease, the most common cause of death and disease in the world, the answer is almost always that that this was decades in the making because they had a history of high blood pressure and maybe they smoked in the past and maybe diet and they were sedentary and all these other things but had been going on for a long time that were either undiagnosed or poorly diagnosed and hypertension or high blood pressure is the most common cause of cardiovascular disease and it's all its manifestations so Hypertension affects 1.4 billion people in the world. Yeah, it's a huge number. And the global control rates, meaning the the number of people who have their hypertension under control, sits at about 20%. Even though we have cheap and easy medications, we have 
clear knowledge about how to treat it. We have, you know, reasonable ways about how to check your blood pressure. But still, despite all those things being available, the control rates for the most common cause of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, is only 20%. And it's gotten worse. So over the last decade, it's actually declined by about 25%. So there's clearly there are major gaps in the diagnosis, uh, awareness, treatment, management of high blood pressure. And that's really what Actia as a company is trying to solve with a combination of technology and services and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, a, and a very innovative, you know, uh, as we'll talk about, um, underlying core, core technology. Mm -hmm. And what's the, to understand a bit, you know, what are the underlying factors that lead to hypertension? Like, you know, in a briefly, how, where does that come from? Because it's so, it's a widespread, you mentioned like 1.4 billion people worldwide. It's like one of the biggest chronic yeah. condition or one of the most spread. So, right. I mean, despite it being so widely, uh, you know, widespread, And for about 85% to 90% of the people, we don't really know why they have it. <laughs> as, as, as it's what used to be called idiopathic, which means it's a medical term for we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it, or what's called primary hypertension. It's for 85% to 90% of people who have high blood pressure, it's that. So that generally it is probably a combination of many factors. There are some genetic factors. There are many lifestyle factors. There are, it, it is probably a, a, one of the diseases at, you know, of, of excess, you know, after the industrial revolution and cheap and ready and high calorie dense foods and modern transportation systems that lead generally people to be more sedentary and our lifestyles are, have changed so much over the last hundred to 200 years that that is where a lot of the diseases of excess are coming from and high, high blood pressure is a primary example of that diabetes obesity these are all other examples so there isn't necessarily one clear cause there it's a multiple factors and that's why generally it's an you know i don't know answer from a medical um Uh, personal, but it does happen very commonly. And so, as you mentioned, you know, in your practice, I assume that, you know, you, you were saying those patients who were taking, uh, you know, the blood pressure on the spot, or you have, I mean, some of those, I mean, many of us actually, I think do have like those, um, you know, those cuffs uh, where you have to wait a bit, uh, you know, you need to stand in a particular position to make, to perform the measurement. And, and I guess that's where the, you know, the solution that Actia developed comes at play. So if we go into like, you know, the technological side of it, um, what is it about and um, how does it work? So let's, I think it's probably important to just like think about how cuffs work for a minute because that's what standard is. So that's what people are aware of. So first of all, cuffs have been around for 110 years, blood pressure cuffs, and in their modern form for yeah. over 50 years where you have an automated box, you push a button, you have the cuff on, you sit in a very specific position you're supposed to be quiet you're not supposed to talk for five minutes you have to feed your feet on the floor back against the chair no children you're not supposed to have eaten no caffeine no alcohol no smoking your bladder is supposed to be empty you're not supposed to have a long shirt on there's 17 things you have to do to take an <laughs> accurate cuff reading right it's like impossible and so the realistic question is After you've done all those things and you're sitting there and you've taken deep breaths for five minutes, and the primary question I would ask is, is that really an accurate reflection of your blood pressure 
throughout the rest of the day. Is that one position, you know, and that sort of very highly controlled environment really reflective of your blood pressure? And of course, the answer is no. Blood pressure changes, fluctuates, you know, minute to minute, hour to hour, it's going to be different. And so this concept of a stable blood pressure of, I checked it once, therefore that's what my blood pressure is, is completely erroneous. But that is generally because of the technology of, uh, of blood pressure cuffs and because of how the, the validation and the tools that we have historically used to get an accurate blood pressure, that is what is in everybody's minds as the, way, the only way to check blood pressure. So it's this historical sort of um, standard constant. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And and what that does is it leads to a concept, a mental concept, a framework for blood pressure that's completely erroneous. Even physicians historically have said, well, I check it in my office, then that's your blood pressure. And that's what I'm going to go by. And that's what I'm going to treat by. And that's what it's going to be. But we know now and there are many, many studies and many uh, much evidence to suggest that office blood pressures are generally not very correct. People are nervous. They're, you know, they're, they're not in their normal state. They're in an office. They're having a white coat sitting next to them and they're pumping up the blood pressure. So it's not normal for them. And so generally the guidelines have all shifted to say, well, why don't, you, why don't people take their blood pressures more often at home and let's go based on those readings? Okay, that makes sense. But who actually is going to sit at home twice a day in that highly controlled position, put your kids in another room, do all the things that you're required to do to take an accurate blood pressure cuff measurement and record it and then send it into your physician? And so just from clinical practice, the number of people who actually follow through on those sort of recommendations is exceedingly small. And and one of the one of the downsides I would say of the medical community has continued to just sort of push and push and push for just people to use cuffs when they have proven over the last 30 to 50 years that it's just not a technology that's going to be widely adopted in the way that it needs to be adopted to make a significant difference. Now they're helpful, they're useful. And they're, I'm not saying that, you know, for for as limited as much limitations as they have, they have benefited, you know, people on blood pressure tremendously. But is there a better way? And I think that's where our founders in our company and that's where Actia really comes in to say, yes, there is a better way. And, and, and so now we can talk, I think about sort of, but that's sort of the framework of, of where blood pressure measurements, you know, historically have been. And now we could say, okay, what is Actia doing differently to, to really make a change there? And so the, the primary core technology development that, that, you know, Dr. Birchi and Sola, you know, have, were working on over the last 20 years is working on a way to accurately measure blood pressure with an optical sensor and device in multiple different body positions. And so you can just put something on the wrist and forget about it and not have to think, oh, I have to be in this one position or I have to be in a very specific environment. And it will just automatically get blood pressure measurements at multiple times during the day over multiple days, weeks, and months. So you can really accurately see your trends, fluctuations, levels, averages, all the, all the aspects of blood pressure that 
that physicians are looking for, that we're looking for as patients, but that are so difficult to get with cuffs. And that's really the sort of transformative, one of the transformative aspects of, of the technology. And that's what they've been able to do after, you know, almost two decades of development. So the listeners didn't see, don't do not see that, and I think I would I would recommend them to you know check on the website how the device looks like. But it's really like a bracelet. We're not talking about like a smartwatch. This is it. It's very low yeah. profile. Um, very low profile. Yeah. Very it really, simple. Like it looks like a jewel, a lot or like you know a piece of jewelry. Yeah, in a way. yeah. It's very yeah. simple. Yeah. And so, how what's the functioning like? Does it work the same way that you know, for example, these wearables or smartwatches that we now commonly have measure heart rate, for example? This. Um, well, the part of the technology uses the LED lights and the optical sensor. So they, they do use the same technology that, you know, smartwatches use to get heart rate and other sort of parameters, but they use it in a very different way. Okay. And, and, so, and so blood pressure, optical measurements of blood pressure uh, at the wrist or in, on any part of the body is extremely difficult. And that's why really nobody else has really been able to do it. Uh, it's taken two decades yeah, for, for our team <laughs> to do it. So it's extremely difficult. And what happens is they use those same optical sensors and LED lights, but they, they use them in a very a different way than heart rate and, and whatever the other physiological parameters that are you get on a smartwatch. And they, there's an algorithm that so the sensors and the lights deliver waveforms, which are sort of curves of how the blood flow is going through the capillaries of your skin. And so it de delivers these curves. And then the real proprietary and, and you know, intellectual properties really in how, does our how do our algorithms look at those multiple waveforms and accurately find the features that enable, enable the, the algorithm to deliver an accurate blood pressure measurement and that's how in broad strokes the technology works and so from a user perspective like um is it ready out of the box like you know i received the, the the bracelet i just put it on and then i have my blood pressure monitor like is there any um no calibration step um how does it work from a user standpoint yeah. so currently in the form in the in the first generation of the device that is on the market is there is a calibration step so in the box we also deliver a standard validated upper arm cuff. It's also all connected through the app and, the, and it's very sort of seamless connection. So we have two devices. We have the bracelet and a calibration cuff. Okay. Once a month, every 30 days, you have to calibrate the bracelet right now. That's how it exists. So only once a month. So once a month, you have to sit down and the app guides you through that whole process, sit down and do the usual you know, position and environment and all those things. And then that's those are the calibration steps that that you have. In addition, that cuff can be used for any on-demand reading. So if you said, I want to check my blood pressure right now, right this minute, and I want to know what it is exactly right now, then you can just put that cuff on and there's you push a button in the app and it gives you a regular standard cuff reading. So there's two advantages to that cuff. But the primary device really is the bracelet. In between those calibration steps, all you have to do is put it on. And then you just walk around and go through your day, day, day and night of your life. And the, the readings just come. You get about 27 readings a day um, without, on average, uh, from one, one user to the next. 
and uh, and you really don't have to do anything. And there's a report that can be generated for your physician. Your physician can look at it directly. Some of some clinics throughout Europe have already uh, installed our software in their system, so they can proactively manage their patients. The patients don't have to do anything. They're the physicians are automatically seeing their data coming in uh, from wherever they are, uh, and 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 they're able to make treatment decisions and monitor those patients' blood pressures remotely. So that's, yeah, that's the combination. So we're not at the stage yet where we can really be, uh, you know, where we don't have to use any more those, those cuffs, or at least just for the it's, <laughs> calibration It's step. coming. I don't think I can say exactly when we'll be there, but in the next couple of years, we'll be able to eventually get rid of the cuff. Um, but right now, in the in yeah. the way it exists, there is the cuff there, yes. So in preparation of the episode, I went through uh, some of the documentation available online. And one element that was pointed out in the way that the technology was built um, was around you know the type of data that had been leveraged. So Actia is apparently based on physiology and even individual data rather than demographics or epidemiology data. Could you elaborate on this point? Yeah, so so there there are a lot of there's a lot of you know quote unquote competitors or noise or other mm -hmm. uh, sort of companies in this space trying to do optical blood pressure measurements, and sometimes there are ways to get uh, a number delivered to somebody's app, and the way they do it, some companies, some some groups do it, is they they take signals and. From a, from a similar type of device in some other way, probably. And they just take those signals and look at a database to say that, okay, what is this person's age, weight, height, gender, race? And then to just map those signals to say, okay, somebody with this signals and those demographics generally has a blood pressure of X. So that's what we're going to tell the device. That's what we're going to tell the person, this is your blood pressure. So it's not based on any physiology. It's not based on. It's just based on a database, which is which may work for sort of average, you know, middle of the spectrum people. Sort of most of them will fall in this sort of, you know, cohort. But it's not going to work for people who have hypertension, who are getting medications adjusted, who fall outside of that cohort, and so it really breaks down when you really are starting to try to treat blood pressure or look at blood pressure in a more medical and high, um, high fidelity way. And that's what's called demographics or, or pattern matching. We don't do any of that. So our algorithms uh, are based on 20 years of physiology studies, first starting in, in an animal lab uh, in, with pigs for many years. Look, so are the founders really were studying the physiologic um, uh, parameters of the art arteries and arterioles and how those affect the optical signals and then they move to human models and same idea we're just looking at human physiology and how those really map to the optical signals so that essentially now today they can decode the signals in those optical waveforms with an algorithm that's based on human physiology so it's a much more accurate representation of that individual person's blood pressure um, and even more so because that calibration step is done with that person, right? That's what the cuff is for. So we're using that calibration step of that individual to even make that algorithm, to tell that algorithm even more so, this is the blood pressure for that specific person based on human physiology. 
<laughs> and that's how our, our algorithms work. And I, and we think at least that's why, you know, uh, we've been able to be successful where many others have not. And, uh, and they've gone through that, you know, two decade process and gone through that work and done all that, um, to really make it based in a physiology, physiologic way. So that's the, because I had seen that article, I think it was on Forbes where it was entitled, you know, the, the little Swiss startup who kind of like beat Apple and other yes. like tech giants in that game. So that's the, that's the explanation, you know, like the, you know, the 20 years of research that was done and also this, you know, approach based on physiological and individual data that, you know, made a difference because, you know, when we compare the two structures, I mean, you, I don't know how many people are working at Actia at the moment, but it's like two other worlds, right? And um, yeah, it's surprising in a way that they didn't manage to do this. And I think there is this tendency where there are, I think it's on the Apple Watch, right? That now it's considered as a, I mean, for atrial fibrillation, they can detect that with a medical grade level. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, we get this question a lot is that, you know, the major consumer wearable companies have all this money and they have a ton and all these, all these people, <laughs> 50, 80,000 people out there, in their employed status. And so people just assume that money and resources equals it's success, yep. that they'll do it. And of course, I guess in a world you can never say that they, they won't or they can't or they wouldn't. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what goes on really in, in, yet in one Apple circle. But, but <laughs> the truth is that, you know, our founders and the team that really got the company started was working on this for 20 years in the absence of a venture capital time time frame where they didn't have to deliver a return on investment in three to five years, where they didn't have to deliver an exit in three to five years, funded by you know the Swiss government largely and maybe the watch industry. And they were just allowed to explore, to play, to explore, to really do the science, to really understand the physiology, to really understand how this works. And it's not necessarily like, you know, like they, the, at least what they explained to me, being less technical, not a technical person, it's not like they've, you know, hit some, uh, you know, they opened some major discovery at one time. It was just a series of discoveries over years of work Incremental and years of improvements, effort yeah. that mm. are unlikely to be replicated even by these huge, gigantic, um, consumer electronics companies, because honestly, in the end, the purpose of those companies is different than the mission and purpose of, of our founders and of our company. Anyway, the purpose of those consumer electronics companies is to sell devices, period, end of story. Sell devices, sell services, sell things that are based on the devices. That's their purpose. And they're really good at it, right? I, we all have lots of devices probably, and they're great. I mean, they do, they, they do what they are meant to do very well. But our mission is quite different. Our mission is to be a medical grade company to help hundreds of millions of people obtain, attain better health. That's our mission and our only mission. And so we come at it from a very different vantage point, a very different perspective. And, and this sort of has this historical freedom to innovate without, you know, being publicly traded and being on some very specific financing timeline. And I think those would be, those are sort of parts of the keys to the, to success where, 
for others just haven't haven't been as successful and you brought a very interesting point so beyond the where you mentioned you know the kind of like capitalistic approach to like developing new solutions which is you know where it requires short-term you know outcomes and and so on there was the part where you say well we are developing a medical device so the the bracelet that you wear it's not something it's not like a consumer electronic you know like all the other devices it's it's a medical device right i think it's uh so it's a class 2a mm -hmm. in europe so not even it's not like the first stage right it's it's, it's something yeah. a bit more than just um, a class one um and yeah so is it like you know my thinking my question was how do we get access to it because when i saw on the website it seems like i can order it but it's still like a medical device so yeah so how does that work all blood pressure monitors almost all all blood pressure cuffs are medical devices they're class 2a medical devices and almost all of them with one bulky exception is sold over the counter so they are regulated but they are sold over the counter and that happens with a number of you know medical products so to get the regulation is quite difficult and cumbersome. And you really have to show your, your accuracy and your um, sort of fidelity. And then, but at the same time, it's a blood pressure. Uh, part of it is a blood pressure, you know, the core technology is a blood pressure monitor, so it can be sold over the counter. So yes, you can access it online through our website. And we're exploring other channels to make it more widely available. But honestly, you could just order it straight from our website and it'll come shipped directly to your house. And it set up takes 10, 15 minutes and you'll be up and running. So, but it is a, a medical device. So in, in some respects, sometimes people look at the form factor of the bracelet and assume like, oh, okay, that's just a wearable, you know, and it puts it and people assume that it kind of gets put in a similar category to a watch or a Fitbit or some other thing. Yeah. And so, but it's important to understand while we have the form factor of a wearable and the convenience of a wearable, we have the accuracy of a medical device, which is something that really none of the you know, large medical, uh, large consumer electronics companies can claim that their products are really medical devices with some very narrow exceptions. Um, they really aren't. They're, they're wellness, you know, health applications. They're not used in medicine. They're not trusted generally by physicians. They are, they deliver a lot of erroneous, you know, information from a, from a health and medical uh, aspect. So, Really, people use them for curiosity, for wellness, for tracking of activity, and that's all great, but they really aren't generally medical devices, with some very small exceptions. So ours is only in the medical device category, and yeah, it happens to be easy to wear. And thinking about you know the numbers you mentioned at the very beginning of the conversation, saying that there's like a very large part of the people who don't know they have yes. hypertension, right? Like, yes. like half of the, the, the people... Of course, I can imagine that, you know, the solution that you provide where you can give, you know, clear information on a continuous basis on blood pressure levels, that's really game changing in terms of, you know, detecting people who have the condition. Um, how do you go about it? Like, is the goal to that everyone gets an Actia bracelet and we yeah. all, um, you know, we all discover um, earlier that we have the condition or not? Um, how do you? How yeah, do you so guys go about you're it? right. Absolutely. So almost 50% of people who have hypertension are not aware that they have it. And one of the, one of the great um, misconceptions, again, going back to how cuffs are designed and how you're supposed to check your blood pressure with cuffs is that 
you can check it one time and it only gives you one reading at that time, at that minute, on that day. And so what, what it leads to, and I see this all the time in practice, is that human beings, as human, we tend to, to, to you know, assume the best case for us. So someone gets a, a one good reading one day and maybe 10 bad readings on other days, but they'll say, well, I was, I have had some readings that are, you know, 120 over 60, so I think I'm fine. And they don't really know what happens in between. Or they get a couple bad readings and they say, oh, I was stressed that day or I ran from there to here and I drank a lot of coffee and I, you know, I was upset about something and I had an argument with my wife, whatever the reasons are. And so they write, they are very willing, people are very willing to write it, write it off. It's like, this is not an accurate measurement. So this is one of the great fallacies of episodic spot check only blood pressures is you're only getting one measurement at one time. You don't see a consistent trend. And it's very difficult to understand what that trend is because you have to just take a lot of measurements to get that trend, which people generally don't do because of the cumbersome nature. So very often people come into the office and they say, doctor, I have on these medicines. I got 10 readings that are good. I got three readings that are bad. What's my status? Am I good? Am I not good? They have a hard time, and even physicians have a hard time figuring out what is somebody's really, you know, true trend, true levels of blood pressure. What is their pattern? And that's where a more continuous, persistent, and, you know, um, you know, easy way to, to measure blood pressure delivers a information in a way that can make those decisions much easier. Do I really have high blood pressure? Well, if your average for the last two weeks is 150 over 90, you have high blood pressure. If your average is 110 over 60 and one day you happen to have some high readings, you really don't have high blood pressure. So is your, and, and if people are in the office and they have this white coat effect where they have a really high blood pressure in the office, but at home it's, yeah, it's normal, stressed. you'll see that immediately with Actia's device where it's kind of difficult to figure that out with traditional you know, cuff-based methods. So really being aware of what is your blood pressure is the first step. And then as we build into our software is what do you do with that information? The next step is, okay, we have a, a transformational technology and okay, we're able to deliver much more blood pressure readings. What does someone do with it? How do we empower the person? Irrespective of where they get healthcare, irrespective of where they are in the world, and irrespective of how much access to care they have, if they have our technology and they have a smartphone or some sort of way for we can communicate information, we are starting to layer information around that core technology. So we can say, your blood pressure looks higher. Here are four things that you can think of that, that you can do in your life to see if you can make an impact. And let's see what happens over the next two to three weeks. Let's see if it makes a difference. So not just awareness, but empowering people to make changes, to become activated for their own health is the next step that we're already building into our, our software. And then we can also empower and enable healthcare providers. So what's an easier way to make diagnosis, a true accurate diagnosis, even before someone walks into the office, they should have all that data and I can make a very clear and easy diagnosis that this person has white coat hypertension or not. This person has nighttime hypertension. This person has normal blood pressures. I can make those decisions very easily rather than sifting through cumbersome and usually erroneous types of data. 
And so it really enables every aspect of high blood pressure care, um, but really looking to empower the patient and empowering each person to being like an active, active part of their um, health maintenance and, and health care. Yeah. So it's really like, you know, trans like transformative and on, on the, let's say the, the user side or the patient side where, I mean, as you said, you feel more empowered, you feel more engaged and you can see the progress as well. And if also like the effects that, you know, medication has on you, like if there is like any doubt or something, I think it's quite revealing. So you have like a source of truth for that. And then on the provider side, that's also make, that makes your life easier from what totally. I And I think yeah. that's where, that's where the world is going. That's where when people ask, like, what are what are wearables going to bring to healthcare? What are what are all these new technologies going to bring? And they're going to consolidate. And they're going to, some are going to a lot of them are going to fall away, and all these things. It's just going to happen. But the truth is, is that there's 1.4 billion people. Just as hypertension is an example, 1.4 billion people with hypertension in the world. There's a global shortage of 4.3 million healthcare providers. That is not likely to be fixed anytime soon. And so really the future of healthcare lies in empowering individuals, in empowering people themselves and not expecting the physicians, the healthcare community, the healthcare as to be the only conduit for them to access good, active and expert level of care. Yes, they need to be there. They're going to be there. Then we need to solve access problems, all these things. We can use this technology. The real transformative power would be leveling up the patient side of it to say, I'm going to be a much more active participant in my health. Here's how. Here I get this expert level of knowledge, even if I'm in uh, rural India or, or, or Lausanne, Switzerland. Irrespective of where I am, I still have access to expert knowledge. It's really dissemination of knowledge in the world that really can really increase, uh, you know, I think people's level of healthcare. Because in the end, that's what it comes down to. It's that that's what healthcare provides. It provides generally knowledge, and and if we put a lot of that, or at least a significant portion of that, for around hypertension, which is the world's most common chronic disease, into our system around our core technology, I think that is the real transformative purpose of Actia, and how we can make it from what we used to call, which is traditional healthcare, where the healthcare just tells the person what to do. Then we've kind of gone to what's called patient-centered care, which is patient is at the center, but healthcare and all the components of healthcare are still telling them generally what to do, to I think what I call patient-driven care, which is the patient, wherever they are, whenever they want it, can access you know, expert care uh, at the touch of their fingertips and even get connected to their local healthcare providers but it's on their demand, on their time, on their, um, with their sort of limitations to access, they still are able to, uh, to access, you know, to, to find that expert knowledge. And I think that's where we're going. That's really the true potential transformative power of, of wearables and this new technology in healthcare. And that's, that's super interesting. And I was, I was thinking like, if we like look beyond cardiology and, you know, because that's something, as you mentioned, that's it's like a trend that's happening across a lot of different disease areas. But what I was thinking was, so in the case of Actia, we would have you know something specific for hypertension. Um, there's like a whole lot of different you know conditions in the world. 
how do you think this is like going? Because if we end up, you know, having one solution for hypertension, one solution for uh, whatever type of cancer, whatever, you, you know what I mean? Like also like in terms of, you know, when you come up with those tools towards providers, um, you have to make sure that it fits the way they are managing patients, that you're not adding complexity to the way they work. Uh, but if we imagine that, you know, there we come up with a panel of different solutions to cover virtually, you know, everything they would need to manage. This sounds like a bit overwhelming. Now, I don't know if this is yeah, like I don't a consideration. Think, I don't think, I mean, healthcare is not going to go away. I mean, people are still going to need to access traditional healthcare and they're going to, and they're going to have to get sort of medical treatments, medical care, medical advice generally. For sure. I think, let me talk about it from the Actia side. And, and I think, and then I think that we can expand to other things. So on Actia side, we are starting with hypertension. Remember, hypertension is the primary input into almost all significant cardiovascular diseases and kidney disease and vision loss and some reproductive diseases and stroke and dementia. So it's a primary input into all these other diseases. And hypertension historically has been, you know, difficult for traditional healthcare to really provide a proactive and engaging ongoing experience because healthcare systems are designed to be reactive, designed to be, well, come to me when you get a heart attack and I will take care of it and I will help you. And that's great. And we need that. But they're not really designed to be, let's take care of a person from 20 years old to 55 when they have their heart attack. How do we really engage that person for 30 years and make them a real proactive participant in their health? That healthcare isn't designed for that, traditional healthcare. <clears throat> so that's the primary, that's what I'm talking about as a primary opportunity. It's like if we start with hypertension because it's a primary input into all these things and we layer around it, what are those individual person's goals? What do they want to get of themselves out of this monitoring experience? And how can they really make, you know, optimize their own health so that hopefully they don't have some complicated event in the future. So it's really built around them. And yes, healthcare can access that data and see their see their blood pressure trends and and look at it the way they want to look at it, as you said, without overwhelming them with data and overwhelming them with with uh, you know numbers. But it's filling a gap that traditional healthcare has no bandwidth for. They have no we have no bandwidth to take care of patients in between the six months or one year between when they come to the office. There's no mechanism of for course, that. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And we tell them, you know, lose weight, reduce salt, reduce alcohol, and do seven things in the span of 15 to 20 minutes, and then come back in a year and tell me how it's going. Where's the reinforcement? Where are the feedback loops that would change human behavior to actually empower that person and make them continue to do those good behaviors? Well, that's something that we can do if someone looks at a certain device every, you know, multiple times a day. Well, that's something we can actually deliver to that person using this proprietary technology, but building around it this suite of experiences to empower them to really get the most for, for their own healthcare that they can. So it's really focused on the patient. And yes, uh, providers can look into that and see, see the data they want to see. And that's great. And, and it makes their lives easier and more efficient. But really, we want to focus around 
the patients themselves. No, that's 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 super interesting, and um, I'm conscious of your time. You've you've explained us, you know, what's the super clearly, you know, what's the the need, hypertension, what's the impact that this um, chronic disease has currently how you go about it with technology and in particular with Actia. When I was thinking about, for example, my dad, he has, I think he has hypertension. So he has to take, I guess, daily or, you know, this multiple times a week, uh, you know, his blood pressure. So that's something I would, I want to, you know, see if that, I mean, I want yes, to yes. get that for him for sure. Um, but yeah, I think this really makes sense, you know, the moving, I mean, that's something we've already discussed in previous episodes. You know, there is like so many different, you know, not only companies, but like initiatives where it's about pushing from, you know, moving from that reactive medicine to proactive and getting people informed. And I think there's like, people are, there are many ways now to to also get very much informed easily about uh, how to go about a certain condition and so on. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And I would really encourage uh, yeah the listeners to check out, you know, how the, how the device is, like how it looks like first and then how, how it works. And it's very visual, like it's super. It's really nice when we go on the on the website. Um, so beyond the website, um, what would be other resources that you would recommend us to to check out? You know, to know more about about Actia or about this science of you know, um, I think it's called mm-hmm. photoplethysmography. Yes, it's a very yes. complicated word to mention, like analysis. <laughs> well, of- I would say two two things. One, we we publish everything that we scientific, uh, you know, in scientific journals. So most of that is on our website, but and actually, I think we link all the papers there. So I would encourage people to read uh, the the papers, the publications, because you can quickly see, even for people who have fairly um, not as much experience reading scientific papers, it's pretty easy to see, you know, what devices and what technologies have data behind them and which ones don't. Um, and and sort of, and, and the lack of publications generally to me means that there's a lack of data or that there's data that people don't want like to publish. evidence. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I would first do that. And we have all of that on our website. Um, and secondly, um, you know, Dr. Sola, one of our, one of the co-founders, Joseph Sola has written sort of probably the seminal text on optical measurements of blood pressure. Um, in he has a, a blood pressure. So even if you just, I can off the top of my head, I think it's called the, the cuffless blood pressure handbook. Uh, or something like this, but his name is Josep, J-O-S-E-P, Sola, S-O-L-A. And um, and if you look up his textbook, you can certainly read it, um, get it, read it. I mean, that provides the most detailed, if anyone is technical, that provides the most detailed sort of seminal text on optical <laughs> signal processing and how to transform those signals into blood pressure. Obviously, you know, from all his years of experience and his thesis and all of this is built around uh, around this technology. So you will get more out of that one reading than anyone probably, you know, can, can, can really describe, uh, if you're really interested in, in looking at something technical. Yeah. Okay. I'll put the links in, in the show notes. Could you share with us an anecdote from your work at Actia, uh, which made you realize the impact that you, you were having on patients' lives? I mean, I assume that you have tons of anecdotes from your clinical practice, but. Yes, we get, uh, so many, uh, so much feedback from people, you know, we have a customer support line and, and so sometimes people obviously write in because they have some issue with the device, but a lot of times we, people write in saying how amazing and how much difference it has made to their lives. And these are the ones that we really, um, mean a lot to us and keep us going and keep us, you know, uh, you know, 
driven on our mission because we hear from them directly you have helped me you have helped my father we've gone to the doctor and we this experience has been so much better and for the first time in years we have a good understanding of hypertension and our control and and all these sort of anecdotes that people write into us um i, I don't know that i could pick one out but it is sort of daily uh, occurrence that we get a number of these anecdotes and that means the most to us and that's really why we are doing what we're doing and so um that that's really um i think feeds our passion for this even more yeah that's that's really cool um so at every episode i i really get inspired by by the guests that i have the chance to to receive it's really like a huge dose of inspiration and learning every time and it's no no exception to it this time um, there are certainly other figures that you look up to, you know, yourself, also contributing to advancing medical technology in progress. If you would recommend one of them um, as a potential guest for the podcast, who would that be, and why would you recommend her or him? Well, I would probably, I would probably say, I'd recommend probably two. I think here, um, one is a is a, they're both doctors. One is a doctor named Daniel Kraft, and. Oh, you've yeah, been, you've already been had here. him on. He's been here on okay. Central. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you stole my thunder then. But he's he's uh, he's a lovely gentleman, and I had the fortune of going to his conference that he set up in San Diego's Next Med Health, which is a wonderful conference for anyone looking to the future in healthcare. Um, and the other doctor that I would probably recommend uh, thinking about would be a doctor named Jordan Schlein, S H L A I N. Um, he's the founder of a very innovative practice in the U.S. called Private Medical, but he's very knowledgeable about all things sort of balancing sort of futurist um, aspects of medicine and dreams and ideas with what works practically in clinical practice and what works with patients in real life. And when when to deploy things in practice versus when to hold off and wait until you know more data has come out and more scientific evidence and i think he does a really nice job at balancing the two um and 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 has a great perspective on many different aspects he's an internal medicine doctor so he looks at all kinds of different technologies and tests and tools for across the spectrum of of diseases and to and to figure out what might be most beneficial to their practice and their patients and so i think that he would and, and he's he's very eloquent and and talks well about it and so uh, that's who i would probably recommend nice how can we get in touch with you jay over linkedin per email yes so linkedin uh jay shah i'm there um and i can send you the 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 link directly and so you can put in the show notes and then across all our social handles at actia global um, and we can put them all there in the show notes. Um, but LinkedIn would be the, the best place to connect, um, for sure. Okay. Is there anything you'd like to, to add before we wrap up? No, I think this has been great. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, I, I loved our conversation and hopefully your listeners will find it interesting and, and helpful. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much, Jay. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. All the notes are available in the episode description. If you liked it, don't hesitate to share it with your relatives, friends or colleagues and subscribe to the podcast. 
I would be extremely grateful if you could leave a five-star review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It really helps Impulse move up in the rankings. Feel free to reach out to me by email or through LinkedIn if you want to share your feedback, questions, or suggest potential guests. Thanks a lot and see you in the next one.